0: You turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1, as we now begin the journey with the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah begins much like the Bible begins with a problem. It begins with an indictment. In the book of Genesis, we find Adam and Eve. They have A wonderful situation that's been set up for them by God. And in the same way, during the time of the kings of Israel, God's children have been protected. They've been given a land. They're in that land. And they have been disobedient. Just like Adam and Eve, the Jewish people, the Israelites, now reduced down to just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Along with the Levites who were serving in the temple... Confined to Jerusalem itself and the region around it are, are really the remnant of God's people. And we're going to see as the book of Isaiah unfolds, much as God speaks into the life of Adam and Eve, where are you? Did you eat of the tree? Our story begins with an indictment against the, the nation for the sins. It begins in a way that we look at our own lives and it's the first step that we have in our journey towards the Lord, amen? If you don't recognize that you're first a sinner, there's really no need for a savior. And so God purposes through the prophet Isaiah to begin to show the people exactly what it looks like from his perspective to look on their lives. His holiness, their unholiness. Uh, And so, part one of a story that I've entitled, Let's Reason Together, uh, which that phrase we'll get to actually in verse 18. But let's pray and ask God to speak to us through these first 17 verses. Father, we thank you for this remarkable story that in so many ways reminds reminds us of ourselves And we pray, God, that you'd speak to us through your word. We're we're prone to wander at times. We're prone to deviate from the good places that you've taken us, the good things that you've done for us, the life that you've allowed us to live. And so we pray that we'd learn from the children of Israel, Lord, from the tribe of Judah. And so God, speak to us, encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, those that need a... A little word of warning tonight would they receive it and those who need that lift up from that place where their head is bowed down from some weight would you lift them out of that dire place lord put their feet upon a rock in jesus name amen verse 1 here in isaiah 1 the vision of isaiah the son of amos which he saw concerning judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. As we said last time as we did our introduction, when you look at these first five chapters, they're all written during the time of the reign of King Uzziah. And so here's Isaiah looking at the children of Israel, now reduced down to just these really two tribes that are confined in the city of Jerusalem. He's ministering to them there A vast majority of the children of Israel have already been taken captive. And so he writes to them in a time when you would think that they would be listening. In a time when it would be fairly easy to see, you know, what we've been doing isn't working out really well. Maybe we should try something else. Any of you ever have that in your life to where the Lord speaks to you through, this isn't working out so well, maybe we should try something else. That is very much the story. They should have been able to look around. They should have been able to understand the circumstances that are in their lives. They should have been able to see for themselves, but they can't, and so God sends them the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah likely prophesied for a period of nearly 64 years. And as he does so, he does so at a historical time during the children of Israel's sojourn in the land that's covered in 2 Chronicles chapters 26 to 32. The historical background is important, so I encourage you at some point in time over the next few weeks, read those chapters of 2 Chronicles because they give you the background information from a Jewish historical perspective. During that time, you had good kings, you had bad kings, but kings are never the problem for you and I, much like in the world that we live in today. You could talk about political things and who you like and who you don't like and what you believe and what you don't believe. You you could look at the world that we're in, you could say, well, I wish our state government would do this and we had these kind of laws and that kind of treatment towards this particular situation. You could go through all kinds of gymnastics of looking at the world you're at and you, you could come to the conclusion, well, I'm just a product of my environment, Or you can believe what the Bible says, and that is every last one of us is a sinner, every last one of us needs a savior, and we're all gonna stand before the Lord one day based on our own merit, what we have done with Christ Jesus, not what happened in our country. Not what laws govern the the world around us. And so to some degree, while it makes it more difficult to be a believer, while it made it more difficult to walk with God during Isaiah's time, the fact of the matter is there were people of faith. There were good kings that encouraged the children of Israel to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so Uzziah comes on the scene. Uh, he is going to give birth to Manasseh and it is Manasseh that I believe is pointed to uh, in Hebrews 11 there are verses 35 to 38 speaking of those prophets of that time. The prophets had a rough job, as we saw last time. They they were not popular. And in fact, many, if not most, died for speaking the truth. Unlike modern televangelists that claim to be prophets, like our president's current spiritual advisor, Paula White... Who says, if you'll send your January paycheck, God will bless you, by the way. She's a heretic. She's a false prophet. But the prophets in those days spoke the word of the Lord. And it wasn't popular. It would be very popular if I were to tell you, well, you know, if you do this, you're going to be healthy. If you do this, you're going to be wealthy. If you do this, you're going to be wise. But if I told you if you don't do this, you're going to die, that's not a real popular message. If you don't return to the Lord, you're going to suffer the consequences of it. That's not going to be a real popular message. The book of Hebrews says about those prophets, others were tortured. Not accepting deliverance. They could have run away. That they might obtain a better resurrection. And still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings of chains and imprisonments. It's always costly to be the voice of the Lord. It's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something at work. It's going to cost you something in your family. It's going to cost you something in your engagement with other people in your community. it says in verse 37 of Hebrews 11, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. And I believe that phrase refers to the prophet Isaiah. They were tempted, slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. See, from God's perspective, he looked at the prophets like Isaiah, and he says, you don't even deserve Isaiah. But because I'm so faithful to you, I'm gonna leave him in this world to to speak forth this message, even though some of you aren't gonna listen. And it is amazing to me that when you look at the Bible, the people of greatest faith, and it doesn't matter whether it's men or women, it's both, the people of greatest faith suffered the most. Always. And so I think sometimes we have to just remind ourselves that walking in faith is not necessarily going to free you from all of the negative circumstances and situations in life. Because there are those that would tell you if you just do this and do that for the Lord that you're going to be completely exonerated from any negative consequences in your life. And that's just simply not true. you're still going to have things that are going to be tough to deal with. You're still going to live in a world that's going to be adamantly against the things of the Lord and you standing for the Lord is going to put you in harm's way at times. So as Isaiah writes during the time of the good king Uzziah, he was a great king actually. His life was marked uh, primarily by a, a walk that was vibrant with the Lord. It's during that time Uh, that the Lord begins this, if you will, a lawsuit. He's presenting this indictment against the nation. He's saying, look, this is the problem. Here's what's going on. These are the things you need to know. And God describes a a people that is absolutely astonishing, if if you really think about it, because the history of the children of Israel has always been God's cared for them. God's delivered them. God's, yes, allowed them into difficult circumstances, but God has always been faithful, including this now group of people that resides in the promised land. They got there after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Unbelief allowed allowed an entire generation to die. Those that were faithful entered into the land. Those faithful ones are primarily the progenitors of these People that are still left. And yet, through all of that, how quickly we forget how good the Lord is. How quickly we can forget how good the Lord is. And we can turn back towards the world. And so, there's a word of warning here. And it begins now in verse 2 Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up my children. God had saved them, prepared them, cared for them, delivered them time and time again from every adversary. He had been good to them to the nth degree. No one could have looked back at God's handling of his children and said, Well, you know, God's just mean, God's fair, God is just. And it says, and they have rebelled against me. An ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. I'm not sure I want God saying that about me. Jeff, you're dumber than an ox, you're not as bright as a donkey what are you saying even an ox knows his master knows where his toast gets buttered amen knows from where his provision comes one of the things that's a stark reminder of this is when you travel to Israel and when you get in the areas that are still inhabited by the Bedouins, you'll see a water tank, a bunch of Bedouin tents, and then a Mercedes, and a Lexus, and a Jeep, and then six or seven cars that don't run. It's kind of a picture of this It's like God's been good. It's very clear that everything's not bad, but they've chosen to walk in the wilderness. They've chosen to live as a Bedouin underneath a tent when they have enough money to buy a Mercedes. You see, we can be like that if we're not careful. We start to not consider the fact that God had nourished and brought them up. Alas, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And in the picture there is a beast of burden upon which is heaped a burden that it cannot carry any longer. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm going to be well someday. <laughs> and in the afternoon, I'm like, ah, oh, I feel great today. And then, so it must have something to do with the fact I'm teaching God's word. So, you can pray for me. We'll see if your prayers work. Amen. Laden down, a brood of evildoers, children who are corruptors. They've forsaken the Lord, they've provoked him to anger. The Holy One of Israel, they have turned away backwards. They've turned their back, is another way to look at that, on the Lord. Why should you be stricken again? Now this is a crazy statement. He's saying, look, it doesn't even do any good to whip you. Why should you be stricken again? You'll just revolt more. The whole head is sick. The whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. And so Isaiah begins with this indictment against the children. first thing he says to them is, you're rebellious. Now it's interesting to me, he begins that way. That God through Isaiah begins that way. Because this is probably the key thing that we need to understand as believers. You have a choice whether you're going to walk in the ways of the Lord or not. And to do anything other than that is to be rebellious. Whether it's a little bit rebellious, a smidge rebellious, kind of a moderate amount of rebelliousness, or whether you're completely rebellious, any walking the opposite direction from the Lord is rebellion. And it always comes at a price. There's there's no amount of rebellion that's actually good. And so he says, look, the first thing that I have against you is you're you're breaking this contract that we made in the wilderness. Do you remember what the children of Israel did in the wilderness? They made a contract that they would serve the Lord. They said, we will serve you. You said you will bless us, we will serve you. And they're saying, well, you know, maybe not. God takes his covenant seriously. And when he's been good to us for us to turn our backs on him, kind of puts us in harm's way. And so there's a lesson for us. Even animals know where their food comes from. Animals know who's going to make sure they have water. In other words, they know where their provision comes from, who the goodness comes from. And so we need to be really careful, and the children of Israel missed this point. They were simply rebellious. The second thing that you see here is that they were kind of wretched. They were decrepit. They, they were beaten up and didn't even know it. The world had taken a toll on them and they were walking around as if they were okay. Now I don't know if you've ever seen anybody or met anybody that's like this. But sometimes people don't even know how bad they look. They, they, they have been beaten half to death and they're walking around, I'm fine, I'm okay, I'm good. Well, the stitches in your forehead, and your nose is sideways, and some of your teeth are missing, and your lip is split, you don't look okay. But because of their stubbornness very often, there's a failure to recognize the fact that they've been beaten up. They start to begin to think like this is normal. That was the children of Israel. And because of that, they'd become infected, diseased. They, they'd learned to live in a way that was just not OK with the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah' is giving them kind of a diagnosis of their condition. He's saying, "Look, have you guys looked in the mirror recently? That, that's not the way you're supposed to look when you walk with God. That's not the way you're supposed to act when you walk with God. And so what happens is, someone who should know what God wants, someone who should know the master's crib, someone who should know that God is absolutely in charge of everything, ultimately, can turn those things off if he decides he wants to get your attention. He can say, look, you know, if you don't want to listen, I have ways to motivate you to listen. But then what happens is those things begin to happen and something gets removed from your life or a catastrophe comes and you fail to recognize that the Lord's allowing those things to get your attention and you just go, okay, well, that's normal. and That's normal. I had a young man that I met in Brazil probably 10 years ago. And when he was born, before he was one year old, His mom was not paying attention to him, and they lived in the city of Sao Paulo. He was sitting on a curb, and a bus ran over his leg. It was in the street. You can imagine it was severely broken, just below the knee. His foot was actually backwards, it had partially healed, the bones had reset but not where way they were supposed to be. His foot was turned inward. This kid was greased lightning on that backwards foot. He was incredibly quick, he could play soccer. He had learned to live with this very disfigured limb and I asked him, I said, how long has it been like that? He said, oh, about 12 years. Oh, aren't your parents gonna, isn't there anything? Oh, it's okay, I can do everything everybody else can do. And it was a picture to me of how we can learn to live with things that are broken. And I guarantee you, that was not painless, initially learning how to walk on a broken limb. The children of Israel had learned not only how to walk on a broken limb, They could run on a broken limb. They could make money on a broken limb. They could worship on a broken limb. They could do everything on a broken limb. Everything was broken. But they were so used to the fact that it was broken and away from the Lord that it seemed normal to them. And pretty soon, here's what happens. God's okay with it. God doesn't mind my sin. God doesn't care that I'm engaged in those things. And then all of a sudden you get the revelation, oh yes, he does care, he cares very much. Something comes along to get your attention. The word in this is, don't be stubborn, don't turn off the GPS of the Spirit in our lives. The children of Israel did that. They just stopped listening to God. It's like we don't really care what he thinks. An interesting story. That's from Pastor Chuck a long time ago, and he was talking about one of the trips that he was in Israel, and there had been a robbery in Jerusalem. In East Jerusalem, it's kind of divided, so the East East Jerusalem on the other side of the Mount of Olives is predominantly a fairly poor area. And people still ride donkeys and do all that kind of stuff. And if you get a little further out of the country, it's very rural. But a couple of thieves had decided to steal some stuff. They had brought a donkey, and they tied the donkey up, hoping that they would use the donkey to take some of the stuff that they were stealing. Well, they got caught. They ran away, but they left the donkey. And being a good Jerusalem police officer, guess what the Jerusalem police officer did? I know how to find them. Turn the donkey loose. And sure enough, the donkey went right back to its master's crib. They caught the thieves just like that. The man was apprehended. We gotta be smarter than donkeys, amen? We should be able to see when God's speaking to us. We should have enough sense to return to the Lord. And the truth of it is, and family, I don't want to beat anybody up tonight. But even a moment of disobedience can have radical negative consequences in your life, maybe for the rest of your days. And that's not so much to scare, it's just simply to do what Isaiah is doing here. It's just a warn God is so gracious and kind, and he is, He's wanting you to return from that stuff and come back to the Master he's saying please don't do that if you turn you just turn back to the lord he's waiting he's willing he has open arms but don't be deceived it can be a horrific price that you will pay when you turn backwards away from the lord exactly as it says here another indictment is that they had backslidden that word backward, we would say they had backslidden; they had gone backwards away from the Lord instead of towards the Lord. And in that sense, they're, they're making God angry because God loves us so much. Uh, if you're a parent, you know that you get angry when your kids sin, amen? When, when your kids do something, you, you get angry and it's not so much at them as it is for them. It's because you know the danger. You know what can happen. Our house in Running Springs, we had a huge oak tree in the corner of our lot. And the first 10 feet or so of it was nothing but trunk. And, and I look out there, and my youngest son is halfway up to the top of it. It's probably 60 feet tall. And he's sitting up there, and my oldest son is sitting on the ground encouraging him <laughs> go higher their neighborhood friends yeah go higher keep climbing you can make it and I, I like lost it I just went right out. what are you doing I was so enraged that they're encouraging him to climb lost him to climb this tree that I forgot that he's still off the ground I mean I was angry at the sin it's like you guys are encouraging him i I wasn't thinking austin i'm gonna when you get down if you live i'll make sure you remember no it wasn't anything like that there was there was fear involved with that there was fear for the safety of my son And so when you think about this for a moment, think that God's not just angry at someone who's in sin. It's not like, well, you're doing something I told you not to do. He knows the danger associated with what's going to happen from you doing that. That's the source of his anger. Sin separates and sin kills. Those are the two things you need to know. It will separate you from God and it can kill you. You're with us as we're studying through Daniel. We're in chapter five on Sunday nights. We're at this pivotal point. We see this ostensibly good King Nebuchadnezzar. His grandson's now in power, Belshazzar. He's seen his grandfather live a righteous life get things squared away. In essence, the sun has handed a, a kingdom that's the most powerful in the world. The city of Babylon, the walls around it, in some cases, with the better part of 300 feet tall, they were 80 feet wide. It was invincible. And so when the Medo-Persian armies attacked around the city, to show his disdain, this grandson, Belshazzar, decides to hold a party. Brings out the temple implements. Begins to drink booze out of the stuff that belongs in the temple of God. Now you would think, eh, you know, all right, so he's just a knucklehead. God took that so seriously that that was the last night of Belshazzar's life. But I guarantee you, Belshazzar thought he was safe. Belshazzar thought he had lots more nights to party. Belshazzar thought he could say anything he wanted to God. But when God's done, God's done. When God's Taking the last stripe he's going to take, he's taking the last stripe he's going to take. You, you don't know when that is. And so this warning, why should you be stricken again? You'll revolt, you'll revolt the more. The whole head is sick. Your, your mind is sick. Your heart faints. You're, you're so full of yourself that it's, no one can say anything to you. This is a dangerous, dangerous place for us to ever get. I'm basically saying, Look, would you just repent? I don't know what else to say to you. You're battered, you're bruised, you've turned your back on me, you've gone the wrong way. It's like, what do you want me to do to you? And again, probably if you're here and you have children, you've probably laid out some rules, and more than likely, if you've been a parent for very long, you've had those rules broken. And so you started with, well, that's going to be no TV for the next eight minutes. And then it moves to an hour. And then you get to the dreaded, I'm going to take away your cell phone. And you grab the cell phone. There's no Nintendo Switch. The kids start to lose it. After a while, there's no more electronics to take away, amen? There's no more devices, there's no more screens, the internet's been shut off in your house. There is nothing you can say. You're down to doing things that you don't want to do. That's why you initially said, well, you're going to have to do without TV for a few minutes. That's why you said, I'm going to take away the cell phone. That's why you said, the Nintendo Switch is going to go. That's why you turned off the router. That's why you have that little phone app to where you can kill your router when, as you leave the door. You're like, ah, I'll show you. <laughs> then you find out that your kids can hack your whole computer system. <laughs> You're down to some pretty drastic stuff, amen? That's the picture you have here. It's like they weren't listening to anything. It didn't matter what God did. Beating them any further was not going to matter. And so basically he's saying to him, look, you're so blind, you can't even see the destruction. Verse 7, he says, your country is desolate. Now imagine, this is the prophet of God inside the city of Jerusalem to the bulk of the population. Hey, have you guys looked outside recently? There's no trees left there's an enemy army over there on Mount Scopus. We'll get to that part later in the book of Isaiah. But he, he could have pointed over to the fires burning on Mount Scopus, less than a mile away, as the Assyrian army is encamped against them. They're in this little walled city with walls about this high, going, we're fine, we're okay. Oh, they're not going to come across here. I mean, there's a creek down there. They'd have to go over the creek. I don't know what they were saying. I don't even know what they were thinking. But I can tell you this. We have so many examples that the Lord gives us one here. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in your presence. You used to have 12 tribes. You now have two they could have thrown in there. You used to occupy all of what we would call modern Israel and then some, and now you occupy Jerusalem itself. All you gotta do is look around you. And sometimes the Lord speaks to us this way, he goes, Jeff are you looking at what's going on around you? You see what happens when you don't curb your tongue, I'll just use something that maybe you guys might have it happen occasionally. When you say things you shouldn't, have you ever seen a destruction that happens? You check that out? It's desolate, it's overthrown by strangers. So the daughter of Zion is left as a booth in a vineyard. You talk about figurative language that's pretty stunning. This is the same type of booth that they would have used at the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a pack of sticks, You just spread it out and you would sit underneath it. You went outside and it made you appreciate the fact that you had been delivered and you now had a place to live. And so you'd go outside. It was like you went camping to appreciate your house. You ever notice how when you go camping, you come back and you go, oh, thank you, Lord, for my bed. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? You you sleep on the ground for a couple of nights and you're like, oh, you could put barbed wire on this and be better, you know, kind of thing. Well, he's saying, look, look, you guys, the daughter of Zion, the city of Zion, the, the southern part of Jerusalem is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garb, garden of cucumbers. Just so you know, you can't live on cucumbers. They're mostly water. So if you had a hut in the garden of cucumbers, you're not going to live there very long. As a besieged city, which was the actual fact. They were in a besieged city. And while the Assyrians were not right at the gates of the city of Jerusalem, they were about a mile away. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a very small remnant, that's what they were two tribes probably less than a couple hundred thousand people in total. We would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now he equates them to Sodom in that sense. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's saying, look, let's talk about this for a second. The nation as a whole has been ravaged, it's been destroyed, there's a tiny remnant that's in Jerusalem. And so he draws attention to Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, we actually have it better than Sodom and Gomorrah, but do you remember what happened with them? It gets down to if there's 10 people, will you spare the city? And so he's reminding them it could get a lot worse God's been gracious and even sparing a remnant, he spared us. But in essence, he's, he's saying there's an equivalence here that you need to take a look at. If God hadn't spared us, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And the inference is this: There were problems that they could see, problems that they understand, and they understood, and there was a way out. But they refused to take that way out. They refuse to relent, they refuse to go the right way. He says, You really don't want to be destroyed like they were, do you? They they could have gone down to the land that occupies the very north end of the sea of the Dead Sea. Now in modern day Jordan, they could have looked the city of Sodom which is being excavated right now, by the way. <coughs> Excuse me. They could have gone down there and said, you know what? There's no city there. They could have looked at the walls. Hmm, these walls look distinctly caved in from one direction and burnt. I wonder what happened. They could have known. God's saying, look, I, I've done this tough thing before, don't make me do it again. God in a measured way speaks to us. He's asking us to, to flee these things that he's told us clearly that we ought to flee. And of course in our world there, there is definitely equivalence between what's going on that we know is not okay with God The issue of homosexuality and homosexual marriage. God has a clear path that He's asked us to take. And when the church isn't standing for righteousness, when the children of Israel, God's chosen people, aren't standing for righteousness, that's the last best hope God has in a practical sense, apart from a miracle of the Lord. We're the last line of defense. The children of Israel were the last line of defense. They should have been the example to the rest of the world. And instead, they were engaged in the same things that the world was engaged in. And God said, It's costly, don't do it. It's no different than what we see in parts of Long Beach or Tel Aviv or Palm Springs or San Francisco. Things that God hates, people celebrate. And and it always has a cost. And we as the church have been called to confront those things. In a loving way, absolutely. In a caring way, absolutely. But stand for what the Lord stands for. We're we're smarter than donkeys. We're not as dumb as ox. He finally says... Look, what I'm really interested, interested in is the attitude of your heart. Verse 11. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? <clears throat> it's interesting that we can get very religious when we are very sinful. It's like we think we can buy God off. I'll just go to church a little more. I'll read my Bible a little more because I'm sinning a lot more. Because I'm doing this thing that the Lord tells me not to do. Well, I'll just give a little more. I'll go on a mission trip. I'll do something that's spiritual. And basically what's being said here to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices? I don't care if you make Passover. I don't care if you make the Feast of Trumpets. I don't care if you make the Feast of Tabernacles. I couldn't care less if you celebrate Yom Kippur. I couldn't care less if you're there at Hanukkah every single year. I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is that you actually have a heart change. I've had enough of your burnt offerings of rams, the fat of the fed cattle. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of the lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? He says, don't bring that stuff into my presence. I, I don't want it. I'm interested in what's in here. Not these things that you think are fooling everybody. I remember when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees about giving, he said, when you give, Do not give as the heathens do, for they do so to be seen of men. And so Jesus said, look, you can dump all the money you want into the the temple coffers. I already own all the money, basically, is what he's saying. It all belongs to me already. It's not like I need your cash. He said, what I'm interested in is your heart. Is your heart worshiping me? Are you actually listening to my voice? Do you want to have a relationship with me? Or do you just want me to assuage your guilt? Or do you want me to take care of the negative consequences that are in your life, but you don't want to repent? And so he says, who invited you in? Don't make any more of these these futile sacrifices to me. Uh, And... If you read church history, it's filled with things like what happened with Martin Luther as he's compiled this list of grievances against the Catholic Church. One of the grievances that he addressed in his 95 thesis that he nails to the church door at Wittenberg is that you could pay for your sins. If you just simply gave enough money it's like, okay, well, three Hail Marys, a couple of our fathers, and 50 bucks. And I'm not actually mocking, that's what it was. That was the practice. That was supposed to be holiness. That was how you got right with God. And God's going, no, that's not really going to do it. Because that's you trying to buy me off. And I already own the sheep and cattle on a thousand hills, the gold and silver in every mine, and the earth in the fullness It actually belongs to me, so I don't need your cash. What I'm looking for is an undivided heart that actually loves me. Those things have been a curse to the church for a long time, they were a curse to Israel. So, what Israel would do instead of listening to God is they'd have a special feast day, they'd offer an extra sacrifice. They'd go into the temple courtyard and they'd bring another dove or another ram or another goat or another steer. Say, man, I messed up, so here you go. And God said, I'm really not interested in these things. These were supposed to show you how much I hate sin so that you stop sinning. They're not a way for you to keep sinning so that you can pay for the sin yourself. You'll never pay for all of your sin. You see, it's a New Testament principle found in an Old Testament prophetic book. He's saying, look, the blood of bulls and goats won't ever do it. Unless you have a new heart, unless you have a new mind, unless you're being renewed day by day into the image of Christ through the power of the cross, you're not going to be able to stand before me. So don't bring more sheep and goats and cows. He goes on to deepen this thought, verse 13. Basically adding, I'm not for sale. Bring no more futile sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. That was supposed to represent prayer. So instead of praying, they just offer more incense. Instead of being righteous, they do something that looks Righteous. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. Let's have another meeting. Let's go to church again. I can't endure the iniquity and the sacred meeting. He's saying, Look, you think I don't see your hearts when you're sitting in there and there's absolutely no change? You're just having another church service thinking that somehow it's going to make it better. This is a problem. This is the problem with religion. This is the problem with what's happened in, in a lot of the church in the world. It's like there's no true repentance. There's no really turning to the Lord. There's just religion. We just go to church and we do something religious. It's not I'm not coming because I want to actually meet with God and have him speak into my life. I'm coming because I'm doing my religious obligation. This is what I do on that day. Because if I don't, you know, God might spank me or something. Well, he may spank you. He may not spank you. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They're a trouble to me. Now, they weren't supposed to be a trouble. God actually assigned those things. He gave them those days. But it's funny, when you're not walking with the Lord, you can turn good things into bad things pretty quickly. You, you can take what was holy before the Lord, and you can turn it into some unholy mess. I've watched people battle over things like Bible reading. Seriously. Well, you, know, you don't read the King James. You know, They're getting ready to go to blows with one another. Well, yeah. Oh, you've got a New Living Translation. You're going to hell. So can you imagine God listening to that? It's like you, you can almost see God reaching down from heaven and grabbing them by their heads and picking them up off the ground. Going, what are you guys doing? It's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, my eyes will hide from you. Now, again, I don't want to put anybody under a weight or a yoke or bondage, but would you listen to what's being said here? What he's saying is, is you can come into church and you can raise your hands, but if your heart's not right with the Lord, don't raise your hands. It's not doing a thing, it's going nowhere. This is not how you get right with the Lord. You get right with the Lord by clearing this up. Then the hands are indicative of what's already happened. But when you get it backwards, and you just, oh. And you go right back to doing exactly what you were doing before, and there is zero repentance, this didn't matter. This comes out of this, not the other way around. This cannot clean your heart. That comes from you getting on your knees and repenting and saying, Lord, help me to not go down that road anymore. Some people will ask, well, I just, you know, I just don't feel the, you know, I don't feel the spirit. And sometimes I'll just ask them, I'll say, well, is there anything between you and God? Is there something hindering your prayer life? And they'll go, well, you know, that, that doesn't happen. I go, really? Where did you get that news? Because it didn't come from the Bible. When you spread your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, you might want to underline this one. Maybe not for you. Maybe you're doing good. But maybe somebody you know who's struggling with some sin issue that they will not repent of. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear, and here's why. Your hands are full of blood. You're still sinning. You're you're still doing exactly what I told you not to do. So even your supposed sacred services are nothing to me. God is looking at our hearts and he's saying, look, Jeff, you, you can't come into the house of the Lord. That's why Jesus said, don't bother bringing your gift into the temple. If you carry something in against your brother, you go and be reconciled to your brother and then bring your gift. It's the same principle. i not saying until you get those things squared away, there's something between you and him and all the lifted hands in the world is not going to change it. Now, I'm not saying, nor is the Bible saying, that you shouldn't come to church. That's exactly where you should be, but it should be in a humble state of repentance. It's like, Lord, I am unworthy to even be here, not not pretending like there's nothing wrong. You know, like my walk is just, oh man, I'm like right there in heaven. God sees that hypocrisy, and he says, I will have none of it. I don't want any of it. I don't want to hear it. What he's really saying is, Judah, until you repent, I'm not listening. God is near to the brokenhearted. The downcast he won't cast out. The person who's humble before the Lord, God hears. The person who's proud, God's going, we got some things to take care of before I'm gonna start listening to all this other stuff that you want. Basically what God is saying is, look, I'm putting my phone on mute, and until you talk to me the way you ought to talk to me, which is, we got an issue, you're talking to the ceiling. That doesn't mean God can't hear you. That means that God is not going to respond. His switch is off. He knows exactly what you said, but he's waiting for a couple of words. Lord, I'm sorry, I repent, Change my heart. He's not under an obligation to hear us. And worse yet, you can't go the opposite direction because that's kind of the context of this. You can't go backwards and think you're going towards him. So some of you are saying, well, I, I don't know if I believe that. So ask yourself this question. Are there prayers that God doesn't hear? Now, He is God. So we're not talking about him audibly not being able to hear them. But does he not act on them? Does he, in essence, pretend he didn't hear them? Does he put them in a category of, yeah, I heard that, but you're going to need to ask that one again after you get right with me? Psalm 66, verse 18 If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord does not hear me when I pray. We'll see in Isaiah 59. God's hand is not short so that he cannot save. Neither is his ear heavy that he cannot hear, but your sins have separated you between you and God. So what God is saying is, look, get right with me and then talk to me. Clear up clear up the air between the two of us so that there's open communication. So that there can be a pathway that's clean and clear and crisp. And you all know this again if you have children. You want to be good to your children, but when they're walking in disobedience and rebellion, they come in and it's like, you know, can I have this? Can I have that? Can I go get ice cream? You're kind of going, no. Nope, sorry, not right now. That stuff's been turned off. That's not gonna happen. Because what you're waiting for is, I'm sorry, you know, Dad, I, I shouldn't have done that. Then all of a sudden, it's ice cream time, right? There, there, there's repentance, there's a turnaround. There's like, okay, you're listening. Now we can talk about the other things. The same is true for God. And while he actually can hear those prayers, he's just saying, you're going to have to come back with that one. You're going to need to come to me again. And in that line, he says, verse 16, wash yourselves. That's another way of saying repent in the Old Testament. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. And if you didn't get it from that, put away The evil of your doing from before my eyes. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Cease to do evil. Pretty clear, isn't it? Learn to do good. That would be the opposite of doing evil, amen? Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. So in the first half of this indictment, God says basically this. Don't flatter me. Don't think I don't know what's going on. I don't really care where you are in politics. I don't really want your explanations and your justifications for why you're doing what you're doing. I just simply want you to repent. I want you to turn around and go the other way. You can't, as my children, do as you please anymore. I want you to do what I'm asking you to do. I want you to do what's right. They should have been able to look around and see the things that had come upon them and go, that's the direct result of being disobedient. And they couldn't see that. In essence, he's saying, I want you to start living right, not just talking right. I want you to do what I've asked you to do, not just mimic what it is that you heard me say. Because it's interesting to me, sometimes we can do that, can't we? We can, we can tell people, yeah, well, God's word says this. And then turn right around and not do it ourselves. We know what the word of the Lord is, and we're like, yeah, it applies to everybody but me. And God's saying, I see your heart. Let's make sure that's right. That'll take care of these other things. Amen? Amen. Just stand and we'll pray together. And whoever prayed, I was pretty effective. I almost made it without coughing. (laughs) Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for this indictment, this warning. Lord, it's hard to hear. It's It's kind of a rough way to start this book, but it's so important because everything else hinges on it. Lord, until we realize that we're sinners, we won't know that we need a Savior. Until we recognize there's something wrong, we won't desire to fix it until we understand how far short we fall we won't care about going up we'll be okay with being down and so lord we thank you for your work in our lives thank you for that grace that just it's a free gift lord you're not asking us to fix it you're asking us to turn to the one who can and that's you lord you'll give us the strength you're just simply asking us to turn just as you ask the children of Israel to turn from their wicked ways and walk with you. And so, God, help us. Lord, if there be any wicked way in us, Lord, some little thing, help us to no longer struggle and stress and strain over it. Just Release it to you. You're a good God and you want to give good gifts to your children. And so, Lord, help us to put ourselves in that place where you can do that bless you. We thank you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.